The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. Welcome to The Hearing with me, Kevin Poulter. In each episode, I chat with some of the most interesting characters in and around the legal profession. You'll hear about their lives, their passions, and their relationship with the law. In this episode, I'm joined by Aisha Vardag, founder and president of the firm that bears her name. Known as the diva of divorce, among her rich and famous clients, her passion for the law continues to push boundaries. And as the Vardag's empire expands, so does a dynasty that's set to shake opponents for years to come. We catch up with her and her robot in the exquisite wood panel ballroom in the heart of her London office. The Hearing. Thank you for, for welcoming us to this incredible office. Uh, we've just been talking before we started about sort of the, the, the dual personality, the, uh, the workers behind the scenes, if you like, uh, of this beautiful wood panelled office. So tell us how, about, how that came about mm-hmm. and the reasons why. We came originally from a very uh, little, quaint, old fashioned Victorian office building right in the heart of Temple Bar where mm. all the barristers and the law courts are. And, uh, and that was very much set up as a private home and uh, and had a very sort of comfortable, quite sort of opulent feel to it. When we moved over here to the city, we thought, right, it's going to be open plan and all very sort of clean and yeah. modern and new. And we went into this big 7,000 sort of um, foot space that was like a football pitch and had all sorts of grand designs for a contemporary office and very rapidly realised that neither we nor our clients liked it at all. Mm. And they were used to, because the law we do is so personal it's all stuff that's deeply personal to do with their lives their their companies their homes they wanted somewhere that where they felt as if they were at home mm. so then I had to try to recreate the feel that we had in the lovely little quaint Dickensian office here but try to capture the space and the light mm. and the amazing view over St Paul's Cathedral and all of that so I went to the north and I found um, rooms that were being stripped out of old stately homes and yep. houses and uh, and I bought three of them and brought them down here then searched long and hard to try to find a cabinet maker who could do something with them which I wasn't able to find in England I found in Italy in my next door neighbour the the chap who was the production designer of Life is Beautiful yes. the wonderful oh. Oscar winning yeah, um, film there with you know everything ranging from ballrooms to concentration camps he was so brilliant and he came over with his team and we just put them up in my house and they sort of lived for three weeks and just put it all up and put it up like a like a film set so we've got these big rooms we're sitting now in one that's called the ballroom because in past times we've had Vardag's employees having ballroom dancing lessons here actually before my <laughs> wedding so they all oh, wow. knew how to dance at my wedding and um and and this has this incredible view over the city mm. over St Paul's but is also filled with Georgian mahogany panelling and silk curtains and velvet sofas so that it's really comfortable for people and uh, and then throughout the rest of the the public part the part that clients mm. come into we have these rooms that are really designed to be comfortable and then through the glass through certain glass offices that we have in between those public parts and the the sort of engine room of the yes. firm uh, you can see where everyone's sitting and that's a sort of it, it's open plan but grouped so people have their 
their tables, their sort of base home. Uh, but it's free flowing, they can talk to each other, they can share information and know-how because so much about our work is to do with just being at the absolute cutting edge of, of techniques within the law yeah. and, and new thinking. And so you have to be close to each other and learning from each other. And so by by dint of this two-part approach, we're able to, to combine it for our clients and our staff. Well, on that point, let's take it back to the beginning because you, the reason you're here is, well, you're, you're the diva of divorce, <laughs> if I can use that phrase. It's not trademarked just yet. Uh, <laughs> but, but how does that come about? And, and actually, how does it sit with you? Is this, is this a badge you wear with pride or is it something that may be less comfortable? Absolutely. Now, I'm delighted to be the diva of divorce. <laughs> this came about uh, when an, uh, one magazine was speaking to me about what I'd been sort of doing and the bits before I um, came back into the law. And I had trained as an opera singer. And uh, so I was, and, and I'm absolutely passionate about opera. And actually one of the charities that we support is Opera at Zion for Children with Cancer. So opera is quite a big part of, of our lives. And, uh, and then they brought, they coined from that, this diva of divorce thing, which I absolutely <laughs> love. So yes, very, very happy with that. Um, and uh, the whole thing, started I suppose um, about well somewhat more than 13 years ago but I but I mm. started the firm myself mm. 13 years ago um, the background to that was that uh, was that I'd been in the city I'd, I'd sort of gone to Cambridge and Brussels and I had qu had quite an, an international legal career mm. um, I was at the uh, UN working on nuclear energy law it was all very very sort of international a, a natural and fit to where we, where we are now, <laughs> where we are now. I know it's one of those extraordinary <laughs> things a quite a series of accidents that brought me to the right place I, because I wanted to do international work I went to Linklater's and uh, was um, in the city there well London and Moscow and qualified mm. there and uh, and that gave me a very good base in dealing with partly in dealing with complex structures because mm. I was project financing power stations and diamond mines and all of that. And it was a lot of dealing with the with structuring as well as dealing with negotiation. And I I also immensely enjoyed litigation at my time there. And that really got me very heavily into doing proper legal research, mm. really looking at the at the core of uh, of what you're doing to try to get the best result. Um, I left Linklater's and went to um, to work for Wild Gottschall yes. in London um, when my actually my my uh, then husband was made a partner at Linklater's and it was deemed um, appropriate that uh, that I move on to another firm. Yeah, such is the and, case these uh, days, also often. <laughs> and I went uh, so I, I went back to London at that stage and I was doing capital markets in the city for a very nice. Uh, law firm while got Shula Manji's a mm. New York based law firm uh, but capital markets really wasn't my thing it didn't have the intellectual register that I wanted so I moved across to the bar given that I was by then based in England I then had a, a one and a half and a three-year-old at that stage I'd kept working throughout uh, throughout all of, of that um, but I had these uh, little children so I was probably going to be in England for a number of years so I requalified and went to the bar and mm. um went into commercial professional negligence there. I did brush family law at that stage at the bar and, and uh, checked it out and did a mini pupillage with Nicholas Mostyn, then mm. QC, who's now become very sort of famous and uh, and um, maverick, hugely influential judge. Was that for New Square? Um, uh, I was, was at Fournier. Yeah. I ended up going to Fournier Square when I did my 
family law uh, mini privilege that was at Mitre Court, uh, which became Hair Court, one Hair Court, um, the leading sort of uh, barrister said. Um, but I did my privilege at Four New Square, yes, in commercial professional negligence. During the course of my pupillage, my um, divorce sort of exploded around us, having spent several years trying to live apart in different countries um, with all you know the, all the pressures that mm. that, that puts in place. Um, it all eventually sort of flew apart and uh, and I ended up in a situation which my children were were not seeing me sort of very much because I wasn't around during waking hours and um, and it was all quite difficult for them. Um, and so I stopped, actually, went into just consulting in, in international law and things like that, okay. and uh, and carried on effectively working on my divorce. And I uh, I hired uh, one of the then leading um, Mayfair lawyers who, uh, who did that for me, and I worked quite closely on it because I wanted to save cost and I mm. had done you know, litigation and all of that. So I, so I did as much as I could. And actually, after um, all the dust had settled on everything, um, we had dinner together and he offered me a job. So uh, it was all very sort of Aaron Brockovich. So, so See, I, I always assume that lawyers are bad clients. Um, <laughs> no, I was a delightful But you client. must have been uh, very impressive, <laughs> taking money away from the, the solicitor you're paying and the barrister. Yeah. But, uh, so th that's that's very unusual, I would say. I suppose um, so. And, and, and completely set you off on a new tangent. Yes, it did. It, it hired me and, away from that whole life of commercial work and into family law, in which I absolutely found my niche because mm. the problem I'd always had with commercial work is I'd found it immensely intellectually stimulating um, but I'd, I'd found it sort of lacked humanity, mm. it lacked that soul that really kind of gets you up in the morning mm. whereas suddenly having the combination of very high-powered commercial work because I was I was doing big money cases mm. and the fundamental humanity of knowing you're making a difference to what someone's future is going to be to them very individually whether they keep their home whether they have their fair share of what they've worked for what if, whether they whether they get to see their children it's it's mm. it's so so important on such a visceral level. It is. I, I had a brief spell during my training contract doing some family law and and it was fascinating and mm. it was legal as it had proper law, yeah. uh, what, what I'll say. And uh, but it was it was so close to the personality, yes. to the individual. It was there was you talked about opera earlier, but the passion yes. that comes from Absolutely. it. It almost was too much. And mm. and sometimes I heard on the side of well actually our lawyers helping here mm. or potentially hindering and, and yes. just go and sit down in a pub and talk it through. Mm. I know that's not always the case. No, but no, no, but I couldn't agree more. And very often, I think, um, in these situations, the, the couple would be much better sitting down around the kitchen table mm. and working things out. I think particularly in, in children matters, I think there's far more mm. children litigation than there ought to be because they just won't sit down and talk to each other. And I really try to encourage that. And of course, sometimes there is just, just an inequality of arms or someone is just obstructive. And then they really need us to, to fight for them and sort it out. Or sometimes they just need someone who's, who's detached and dispassionate uh, but when it's possible it's much much better that couples work it out for themselves and they they have a more of a feel for what's fair more of a feel for for what they really need mm. um, 
And we try to achieve that. Most of our cases, in fact, settle at the sort of midway point. There is a court-assisted um, negotiation process built into the standard uh, mm. system. So about halfway through, you have a big, almost like a dry run hearing, the FDR, at which you, you've got all, in principle, all the financial information in, everybody knows where they are. The case is presented by the barristers on both sides and the judge listens and opines and tries to give a steer. And then you mm. both shuttle back and forth and try and work it out. And most of our cases happily do settle there. The trouble is, um, if you have a huge disparity of perspective, either because there is believed to be non-disclosure or there's the, the, there's just mm. a big range of options. And family law is unfortunately so discretionary mm. that in the bigger money cases, you quite often have a situation whereby it's hundreds of millions that are at stake and you're much less likely to get a, an agreed deal if there's enough at stake for fighting on to be worth the legal fees because of the range of options that you might achieve through it. Now, for many people, talking about hundreds of millions at stake is, is probably not that common. No. Um, uh, but, but that's really a, 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 another niche that you've found, this sort of high net worth, yes. um, uh, in speech marks, celebrity client, uh, yeah. whether it's from fields of sport, music, wherever it might be, royalty. Um, is that something that you targeted or is it something that is, has happened naturally uh, through your reputation? Uh, how's that come about? I always intended to be at the top of the field. I mean, I, I, I think I just had always set my intentions um, there. Mm. I, I was greatly assisted by the fact that I'd been to Linklater's and I'd been to the bar and I'd also um, in in the gap mm. before I went back um, and, and start up my own law firm I taught the Queen Mary's five-star law course and so I had a, a very strong foundation in all the sort of little nuances of family law that one might not necessarily pick up in practice and I, I was very robust in terms of my confidence about my ability to handle very big transactions and and my ability to go into the absolute depths and cutting edge of the law because mm. of my time at the bar. Mm. So I came into this with a lot of confidence and a lot of knowledge and, and set my cap very firmly yeah. at, uh, at the elite work. And fortunately, um, the, the USP that I had, which was... Um, I'm going to bring city level quality to family law mm. really resonated um, with a lot of people. So it started out um, very much kind of blue chip city clients. And then because I, you know, started to have a, a good track record of, you know, of, of cases and that sort of thing and to build a reputation, moved into the very high net worth um, after that point. And the point that really consolidated that was when I won um, Radmacher yeah. in the Supreme Court because that was, it was such a sort of an unusual and unexpected thing in, in many ways. Um, the law on prenups was very long established. I remember when I was first taking on the case, a bunch of very established lawyers uh, telling me, oh, well, you just don't really understand. It's not, uh, you know, prenups don't work. And they, and they all assumed that this was because I um, just didn't know. But the reality was I'd just researched and researched. I'd watched the shift through the different cases and the mm. dicta of the judges in the zeitgeist over the time and the, and the way that uh, the, the way that it was approached. And I felt that, that it was really that the law was ripe 
for a change. Also that there was an anomaly with the rest of Europe and this yep. resulted in this sort of forum shopping into England. And I felt if I brought out that point, um, then this would resonate. And I also, um, I felt strongly that the sense of autonomy, the autonomy of the individual and the couple versus this sort of default state control yep. was another important point to make. And uh, and the other thing was that, um, that, that the way the law was, it was predicated on the idea that women, um, as, as actually one of the Court of Appeal judges picked up, women were so desperate to marry, they would agree to anything, and they couldn't then be expected to be held to their bargains when mm. they were in that weak-minded state. <laughs> and that this was you know, fundamentally offensive, that now women rightly expect equal opportunity, equal power, and equal place at the table. And mm. if they're going to have that, they can expect equally to be held to their bargains and have equal responsibility. So I felt that the time was just so right uh, for this, and that the fact that it hadn't been done before was irrelevant. It just needed somebody to make those arguments um, forcefully and persuasively. And thank goodness that was successful. And we succeeded in the Court of Appeal and and, um, and in the Supreme Court on that, which was and just immensely satisfying. And that was what really got me out there. Yeah. And then then many cases followed. In, term, well, in terms of the media as well, yeah. uh, huge, like followed very closely. And yes. in part, I guess, due to the uh, the, the 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 money that we were talking about. Yeah. This wasn't somebody down the street arguing over a hundred pounds. This yes. was a, a big money case, and um, it changed the law in England as well, which which shifted. I feel quite strongly it it contributed to a, a shift to to sort of more perspective on female equality, mm. more sense that women are not just people you just have to look after. Women are out there earning their own money, having their own responsibilities. And this was something that was always very important to me. And the way that our system works is you need to have, unfortunately, the money to go through the court system to be able to to, to get that way. Yes. And, exactly. and only the people really that have got the, the cash behind them can afford to do it. Yes. Um, but it did change the law. And uh, prenups now are seemingly more and more common. Is that is that good or yes. bad for you? Because <laughs> um, does <laughs> this is, cut down is. the arguments around the divorce case? Yeah, arguably it's uh, it's like turkeys voting for Christmas. But <laughs> but um, uh, and that is certainly true because if you have a decent prenup in place, which you know it costs you a little bit of time and bother and hassle mm. to set up, but then you really shortcut your way past the divorce lawyers past the courts and uh, you can really get it wrapped up between you very quickly um, so uh, so yes it does cut us out of the loop but um, you know I figure that uh, the, you, you you sort of it's, it's sort of like whack-a-mole with uh, with the law really one thing gets dealt yeah. with and another thing springs up um, I'm very much in favor of anything that streamlines the process I think the present situation is a complete mess when the mm. range of discretion is so broad that couples can't settle between them that you can you can if you've been doing it for long enough you can have a feel for what the court is likely to do but you have to caveat it with well you might get one of these judges that thinks down a particularly yeah. different line and you know you can't it's become even worse actually recently because it used to be rather broad brush but you, but you could sort of see that you were dividing the marital assets 50 50 what mm. had built up during the marriage with a little bit of you know give and take here and there but now there's a there's a trend to undercut that in some cases which means that inevitably in in each of those cases well everybody wants to put mm. themselves into one of those cases if they're trying to protect their assets so the range has got even greater and the dependence on divorce lawyers is mm. 
is even higher than it was. It's obviously good for us, but it's not good for our clients. And, and ultimately, if you've been in the field long enough, you start to care about how it's going and, yeah. and where it's going. So I've been campaigning quite hard to try to reform whatever I could. Well, there are reforms coming mm-hmm. through. So the uh, the online divorce now is, seems to have been very popular. So the, yes. to the government, at least, is very popular. Is that your experience? I guess it's a different uh, client base that you're, you're targeting. But. When cases are very simple and straightforward and there's basically nothing to fight about, yes, doing mm. divorce online is great and mm. you, you can just avoid all of that hassle. When there's something to fight about, it doesn't work having yep. that. But and then what we need is just a more predictable system with mm. more uh, recognizable rules. You can say, look, this is our situation. Boom, boom, boom. This is this is the formula mm. that's likely to be applied. And in situations like that, they could, it would make everything much cheaper and uh, more straightforward for and, people. And and you mentioned briefly earlier about forum shopping and and how mm-hmm. people do come to London for family issues yes. uh, from all around the world. Is is that likely to change in the next few years given what's happening with Brexit is that no impact whatsoever other commercial courts setting up around the world um, and family courts um, the English system has always attracted litigants because uh, be that in the commercial spheres or, or corporate or otherwise mm. um, and that's because it's fundamentally seen as fair straightforward judges might be grumpy sometimes but they're straight and they Mm. care about getting the right Mm. answer Um, and so it is seen as as a very clean intelligently applied system um, across the board and our legal system has been exported across Mm. the world as well as people coming here Um, add to that the fact that for the claiming party England is has been a very very generous jurisdiction with the, with a strong emphasis on sharing on equality and no discrimination between breadwinner and homemaker mm. and 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 a very strong recognition of the the contribution of the non-earning spouse so that as long as the legal system is like that that will still attract litigants the fact is the economy and the big community of resonant doms is well, there are lots of Europeans, but mm. there are also lots of people from elsewhere All in the, the world, world. Right. Um, who, you know, arguably might find it easier to, to do to be here. So it's hard to know exactly how it's going to pan out. Hopefully, we will end up with a situation in which um, people from the European Union are very welcome under a special regime that enables yep. them to carry on yep. here and we are more able to attract the people from the rest of the world and then London will mm. remain even more of a global cosmopolitan rather than sort of fortress Europe but a properly mm. eclectic hub for all the world and mm. that's very much what I what I would hope to see. Good. Good. Um, the uh, just touch briefly on this because the, the the conversation around no fault divorces has been growing steadily. It seems as an outsider, at least, uh, for many many years. Is this something which you think is a, a, a good idea um, at the moment? It's you, two years of separation. Is that right? I launched um, the the campaign for family law reform primarily on the ticket of no fault divorce, and we we had a very very lively and very successful debate at the uh, at the conservative party conference to oh. try to to 
launch this issue and mm. try to sort of lobby because it because it's in the Labour manifesto. So that sort of ticked that box. You weren't going to have to deal with the opposition jumping up and down and shouting, well, you're the party that's anti-marriage, <laughs> which is always what's happened in the past um, if the Conservative Party embraced it. So then I was trying very hard to try to, to get them interested. It was, it was a great event, actually. Katie Hopkins turned up oh. wearing her wedding dress. It was superb. And um, so... Uh, then the Times picked, picked it up, and I was very happy to see that. And then uh, we um, were able to have a debate in the House of Commons, which again was very successful. So the whole thing has been gathering more and more momentum. Mm. That There was a sort of foray a few years ago in a private member's bill, but that just sort of fizzled out. Um, but I think it's really got some momentum now, and I'm seeing more and more people embracing it. So I'm very, very happy about mm. how that is uh, that is going. That is fundamental, I think. If you're going to have a divorce um, with unilaterally, as it were, from your own choice without any argument, it has to be five years, mm -hmm. you can have two years by mutual consent. Yep. Um, or what everybody does, because unless it so happens they've been separated for that long period, what everybody does is, is um, they assert behaviour or adultery. Many people mm. are pretending that there's adultery just so as not to have to come up with a load of horrible right? behaviour stuff. Yeah, because adultery doesn't make any difference to the financial arrangements. No. Um, so just to get it through quickly, they'll have adultery go through. Um, what we used to have, because it's got even worse now, we used to have what's called a weak petition. Mm. So you'd put in a behaviour petition that was very light. And as one judge once said, most couples by the end of the first week of their honeymoon have got the wherewithal for a valid divorce petition. Um, and, you know, you were insulting about my mother or you were cold and withdrawn or you know all this kind of stuff and um, so we would there would be like a sort of pact between lawyers and the judges a mm. sort of unwritten pact you'd create a weak petition so you didn't upset anyone so you didn't yeah. cause distress it was still a, a an odd, uncomfortable, unpleasant mm. thing to do, to be divorcing someone because it was their fault, because of their bad behaviour. But it was at least not highly offensive, really combative, really hostile, mm. or it didn't have to be. Mm. Um, since the Owens case, it's become more difficult to do that. You put in a weak petition, and if the other side decides to be obnoxious about it, um, then you're, you find your client trapped. Yeah. And so now it's up the ante. So people are having to be more hostile and unpleasant mm. in, in petitions. Plus the whole idea that somebody might be trapped in a marriage, be forced to remain married to someone that they want to get away from, I think is, is just fundamentally against human rights. I think it's like a sort of slavery. And I, I think it's, it's unimaginable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, I think it, it's so long overdue. Mm. I mean, very similar to... To prenups just can't really um, be dealt with without um, without legislation. Mm. This is something that has become a, a dinosaur within the law and mm. needs to be knocked on its head. And it's out of an old Victorian morality that divorce is a bad thing. Uh, people need to stay together. So if they're going to get out, you have to punish someone for mm. it. And uh, and it, it just has no place in a modern, compassionate, family-focused society. Mm, well, talking about Victorian morals, of course, same-sex marriage now, mm. uh, and, and that's something you're dealing with as well, I, yes, I, I presume. Absolutely. And and how's that changed, if if at all, um, the way that maybe the courts perceive marriage and the way that it deals with divorce issues? Has that had any impact? Fundamentally, whatsoever? the courts don't 
approach things for for same-sex marriage any differently and, and this I, I've had to deal with this a few times every time there was a civil partnership or something mm. which was like this sort of halfway house that was put in before before the legislature could quite get its head around <laughs> the idea of gay marriage so you put in civil partnership um, to you know to, just as to sort of get there but not quite um, from for civil partnership when those started to unravel in the normal way um, people jumped up and down and said look look it's all very dramatic but it wasn't it was exactly the same rules as it mm. was for married couples and now of course it's the same for in um, in same-sex marriages but um, I suppose the one thing it does do which is very positive it's uh, it, it gets the court to accept that they or to break free a little bit from some of the conventional gender stereotypes. So you'll have someone who's adopting a homemaking role or someone who's working or both will be working and mixing it up and mm. and and the courts are just having to to sort of approach all of those different roles with a more flexible more creative way and mm. i think that 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 will well it it makes for more <laughs> nuance in the law um and more understanding more insight however it has the corollary effect of making it all more even more unpredictable yeah it's down to the judge yeah. uh, unfortunately yeah. um, so so stepping away from the law for a moment now, I think I'm right in saying you're, you're living in Dubai now um, well, or I between Dubai between Italy Dubai here. Italy and here so I'm continually shuffling and, and yeah, um, by doing that I've masterminded <laughs> one of the fastest growing law firms if not companies um, in, in the UK now how do you how do you balance the two things together? I think the the fact is that now with the with the internet with mm. Skype you can be absolutely anywhere. I've run conferences from literally a treehouse in the Amazon, and uh, you know as long as you've got Wi-Fi you yeah. can do absolutely anything. So I just find that I'm constantly mobile. And I'm constantly on my phone and my computer and my and uh, dealing with emails and Skypes. I also have a robot. The robot is very cool. Um, he uh, he sits. <laughs> she the va- the robot. Oh. Uh, she sits in the office, and uh, it's it's like a, a Skype screen on a Segway. Effectively, I saw this first of all on Modern Family, Modern <laughs> Family, and on Good Wife. And, uh, and then those. I, having spotted this, I said, I want one of those. We tracked it down. So um, the I sort of go into and possess the robot from wherever I am and then I can zigzag around the office and get up behind people and chase them out of conference rooms I, where they're hiding and <laughs> I presume you've got some sort of hoover attached as well so you can do the cleaning up <laughs> at the same time perfect. that's, that's clearly the way to go we'll, well I look forward to meeting the Varbot later and you've got a family of lawyers I think historically mm. uh, your pe- was it your father who was my father uh, that's lawyer. right my father and my aunt so my aunt was I think the first female judge in New York and I spent time with her in my gap year um, she specialises in tax although I think she was civil at that point mm. um, uh, my father uh, spent his time as a, as a lawyer and a politician civil engineering and, and like big criminal cases mm. and that sort of thing against the government in Pakistan he was always a quite a sort of rebellious figure imprisoned uh, twice by General 
Zia for making Gosh. pro-democracy speeches, and he had an amnesty campaigning for him, um, various assassination orders under the, the Bhutto, the father, which he had to sort of face off in a variety of ways. Yeah. So, so did he did he encourage you into the law then? Or was it something that you... Uh, he did. Yeah, he did. And my mother did. Um, my mother felt very strongly, um, sort of knowing him and, uh, and, and knowing me, that, uh, that the combination of sort of logic and oratory would... Suit me, and I'd mm. enjoy it. And the rebellious nature. And the slightly rebellious <laughs> nature. <laughs> um, and 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 your children. Uh, I think at least two uh, I've spotted on your website. Yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, on the payroll as seemingly yeah. talent scouts. Is that is that a fair comment? <laughs> yes, I mean that that is How that, that is right. What, now they're coming more fully into the business actually, uh, but one has just finished Cambridge and he's been a very very effective ambassador for Vardex uh, mm. bringing a lot of people through actually uh, into our graduate training program and um, then another is uh, he's got another year at UCL but he's going to come in when he finishes and he's um, he's down oh. there at the moment actually because it's holidays on client relations sort of booking in clients and you know interviewing them and that sort of thing so yes uh, the, the one who's just finished at Cambridge actually wants to go and become an actor so he'll okay. be working for us next year but probably sort of dipping in and out a little bit for auditions and if he gets into drama yeah. school then he'll be off uh, but the other one is, uh, is is you know is quite determined to come and uh, make his career and take his place within the yeah, and and you're diversifying slightly out. Well, slightly, um, completely away yeah. from not away from family law, but enhancing the yes. family law offering. Um, is there is there a, a good reason for that? Is it yeah. diversifying to keep that stability? Depending on what happens with the courts here, the fundamental rationale is that we want to provide everything that high net worth individuals, their families, and their companies require. So we're still very focused on individuals, and we want to have that sort of that personalised Rolls-Royce service, but we want to provide the, the full spectrum. Mm. Um, and uh, so it's, it's, it's driven out from family law when people have wanted us to, after they've become clients and they trust us, they want us then to do other things mm. and we want to, to meet that need. Um, and yes, inevitably, I mean, it, once you feel you've sort of conquered one area, or certainly the way I feel, you, you want to kind of go on and do the next, mm. like Alexander the Great, so when is it, when is it enough? And, uh, and so there is that, that sense of, you know, we, we've still got lots to do within mm. family law, mm. but we want to start um, taking on the other areas. So civil mm. litigation is, is just going extraordinarily well and is very exciting. It's, they've all sort of grown very fast, these departments, from sort of one person a year ago to sort of five, you know, five people in, in civil litigation and, and still hiring. And, and in criminal, it was a similar trajectory of, um, well, sort of, yes, very, very steep trajectory. And now um, we're taking on and winning in beauty parades against um, the, the old established leaders. We just mm. uh, did the the very tragic, very, very high profile Sophie Leone case. It was sort Gosh. of, you know, the, uh, the murder of the decade. And, mm. and, um, and so mm. we've... Um, we've sort of come in and hit very hard within mm. criminal as well because that's another thing that really matters to people it's I, I suppose our sort of unofficial strapline is when it really matters when it's something that really goes to the core 
of what you care about, we are the people to, to come to. Um, we've just had a, a director of employment law again, yes. because this is one of those fundamental things. And yeah. having having commercial litigation, we are also um, in the process of sort of building out our regular corporate offering. Mm. Um, tax and property, yeah. and uh, because again, those are things that uh, that are fundamental to people. And then two very, very important niche areas for us are sports law, because of course our clients sort of need that yeah. sort of assistance, and um, and media law, because you know we, we've Same ended reason. up doing quite a lot of it actually because of um, just the sort of clients that we've had, and so we really want to mm. to build out that department and harness that market good well it seems to be going very very well for you <laughs> um obviously the vardag's name as well uh owning it uh, across up and down the country now and and globally but um what's next for you uh, i i got the sense that maybe there's some sort of political motivation there is that something you've considered i have absolutely considered uh political life particularly as my father spent his life doing that he ended up being the, the youngest senator in, in Pakistan and, and he's now um, campaigning I think he's now within Imran Khan's party so he made his life there in politics yep. and I thought I've always been in England with, with my mother and I thought about trying to pursue a political uh, career here but I think um, the bottom line is it would split my focus too much and you know this the, the firm is is my baby I care you know really very much about the community that's here and uh, building that out and making it really strong and and it's a, it's i have very much a sense that this is a dynastic firm i wanted mm. to be here for hundreds of years for my children for the children of the people that are my co-directors now and so i have actually rejected the idea of uh, of going into politics on my own account but i do care about making a difference mm. and trying to influence policy and i think i can do that from a corporate position mm. from a corporate and and from having a voice in the media and so uh, so i'm going to stick with doing it that way but for me no i just want to i want to build this out i want this to make the, the to make this the the greatest uh, law firm for individuals their families and their companies uh, that england has ever seen um in due course i will look at international expansion but the focus is very very firmly mm. on this nation at present and mm. just being very strong here well good very best of wishes thank and you very much uh, we will look forward to following you thank you <laughs> thank, thank you for your time much. the hearing a legal podcast from thomson reuters to find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.